Hello, you're listening to Wait, How Do You Spell That? A Rare Disease Podcast. My name is Colby, and I'm the editor here at PatientWorthy, and welcome to 2024. Today, we're going to be discussing atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, also known as AHUS or AHUS. That's a rare disorder characterized by low levels of blood platelets and blood clotting in the small blood vessels of the body, particularly in the kidneys. Without treatment, AHUS can be a life-threatening condition causing severe anemia, kidney failure, pregnancy complications, and more. And to help us in our discussion today, I'm happy to say we have a very special guest. Taylor Kaufman has a background in acting, working on such television shows as Silicon Valley, Feud, Betty and Joan, and Jimmy Kimmel Live. Following her diagnosis with AHUS during her pregnancy, Taylor also started to work as a patient advocate, helping those with life-changing diagnoses to process their new reality. Taylor, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning or good afternoon. Are you here on the West Coast? I'm on the East Coast, so we're we're working with a little <laughs> yeah, little bit of a time difference, but thank you for making the time today and we're super excited to have you on the show. Thank you. Yeah, and to start with, would you mind telling us a little more about atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome for people who may not be familiar? Yeah, it's a nasty disease. It basically, I sort of football metaphor, we were here right before the Super Bowl, I guess, in a sense. So essentially in your immune system, there's something called the complement system. And it's sort of like an offensive line and you have referees in the normal body. Those refs keep the offensive line on the field. But unfortunately for me, my refs are not on the job and the offensive line is attacking the fans and the coach and the people who sell popcorn. They're probably going out into traffic outside, attacking them. So essentially, it turns what your blood is sort of normally flowing through your body and it's attacking the platelets and any other thing that sort of makes these tiny, tiny blood clots. And they first attack your small blood vessels, like you said in the promo, but Annoyingly, those tiny blood clots like to also migrate and clump together. So in my case, I had clots in my heart, in my lungs, all over my pelvis. I was pregnant at the time, so it was in my cord and sadly all over my kidneys causing me kidney failure. Yeah, so not a fun disease to have. Luckily, we do have a treatment. So (laughs) it's one of the very small amount of rare diseases that does. So I'm very lucky for that. And to stick with the football metaphor, not a game you'd like to attend. Then. <laughs> right. So, well, then take us back to the beginning of your journey. You have a background in acting and the creative arts. Tell us about your life prior to diagnosis and what happened during your pregnancy. Yeah, yeah. I think my life prior to diagnosis was me just like living in LA, being an actor, being a creative, working in media. You know, I worked on camera and off. And I also worked at a radio station and in podcasting. But eventually my husband and I, you know, decided to start a family. It became time and I had a very uneventful pregnancy, medically speaking, just, you know, the sort of normal symptoms, nothing that flagged. Uh, Luckily, I got really great prenatal care. And about a week after my due date, my doctor said, let's head in, let's induce. So the baby was showing signs of stress. And so we went in for C-section, delivered a healthy baby, thank goodness. But I wasn't so healthy. I basically started hemorrhaging and dying, essentially. So I was rushed back into another emergency surgery. 
And then I was essentially a medical mystery for a little bit. But luckily, I had a stellar team of doctors. I had a challenging case. So I had hitting many, many organs. So I had upwards of 10 to 15, maybe even more. I didn't even meet because I was unconscious sometimes. Doctors on my case. So one doctor, this hematologist was like, I think it might be this thing. If it's atypical HUS, she needs this one particular drug right now. Thankfully, he checked his email on a Saturday. I was able to get the drug before the end of the weekend, and they stabilized me enough so I could wake up and meet my baby uh, a few days later. And unfortunately, though, she went home and I stayed another five weeks. Well, that's great. I'm glad you got to experience that. And thank goodness for checking your email on the weekends then. Uh, Like you said, I'd like to focus for a moment on that transition from expected mother to ICU patient with an acute illness. How do you process the kind of emotions that you're feeling around bringing a new life into the world and then immediately having to focus on your own health and well-being? Well, I think at first you know, you're just dealing with the immediate acute stress, right? The waking up. I mean, for me, first of all, I was an unfortunate, I started to hear before I could actually wake up. So that sort of classic trapped in your own body thing. I laugh now, but that's just because I've had to deal with the reality that I could hear before I was able to wake up. And then I was able to start to wiggle my toes and they thought I was having seizures. And then finally I woke up. So, you know, a lot of that early part of the journey was just sort of, let's get to the next thing. Let's get to the next thing. Okay. I have to go in for another surgery. Okay. Let's get to the next thing. How's the baby doing? I remember one of my doctors brought me her little hat and I just held onto it in the ICU. And it was very, very scary. I would just remember her cries because all I could hear when I gave birth was her cry across the room. I didn't even get to meet her or see her or hold her. All I would replay in my head was her little cry. And so I just had this faith though, that I was going to get to see her. I kept asking when I would, and it, it was never like a great time because they were just spending so much time trying to like save me. But finally, after getting Eculizumab, the drug, the sort of cascade of challenges slowed for a moment enough for her to come. It was sort of like she was in a Pope mobile coming into the ICU. <laughs> they had her in those one of those little cases and she was wheeled in. I got to, you know, there wasn't a dry eye. I got to hold her and feed her. It was, I gave birth to her at 1 a.m. on a Thursday. So this was like the next Sunday. And it was too short. It felt like mere minutes, but it was probably about 30 minutes. And they were like, well, now she's got to go. I just remember after that, just that was when I think it all hit me. When she went home and I didn't, that night, I even, it probably wasn't good for me either, but I refused my meds. I refused my food. All I could do was just cry. Mm Mm-hmm. It was really, really sad. I also, you know, I had this faith that I was going to get home, but the goalpost kept moving because Mm -hmm. I was hit so bad. I mean, the list of things is just, it's insane. I think they even stopped telling me everything because it was so much. You know, it actually took me checking my own chart later Mm -hmm. once I got like into a stable moment to go, oh, wow, all the things. So 
you know, I would think I'd get to go home then another week and another thing. So it was really hard. Luckily, the hospital gave me special permission at a certain point to have her come in and visit me. But it was still really hard. The first time she came in, I'd had four abdominal surgeries at that point, and I couldn't even really hold her, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was in so much pain. And it was really, really hard. Not the best circumstances to meet your new baby in, but I'm sure that's all that you wanted to do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was really... You go into survival mode, I think, and I was just trying to survive. But whenever I found myself in reflection moments, that was the hardest. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that at a certain point, you feel like they stopped telling you about the problems that were going on. In preparation for this meeting, you know, you sent over this this list of individual diagnoses broken out in all these body systems or areas of treatment that you received during the stay in the hospital. And there are, are dozens of them, including respiratory failure, congestive heart failure, severe infection. Any one of these would be a challenge on its own. Any one of those would put a person into the ICU. But to face those all at once and to have the cause be a condition you didn't even know existed the day before, take us through what you experienced. Well, I think they were really careful with me. Well, I mean, listen, I'll say this. I had so many different doctors. It was interesting to sort of interface with so many at once. And that in itself is a challenge. You know, this disease is a multidisciplinary team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some doctors were really positive and some doctors were really concerned, <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously they were all concerned, but like a lot of them just sort of like, oh, you have an infection. I didn't know it was sepsis. Mm-hmm. Until, like, the, the most serious infection you can get, right? <laughs> like, oh, you got, but they, what they were doing is toggling two things. So I was an advanced patient for any doctor because I had, well, one thing I had low platelets, so I had a bleeding disorder, but then I also had clots. I had those two things at the same time. I had an immune compromising drug that I needed to save my life Mm -hmm. and a severe infection. Mm -hmm. And so it was like a game of chess to figure out what do we fix first so then we can fix these other things. And so I think really it took the third trip to the ICU and I knew it was bad then because I had, I was out for days an induced coma at that point, I think my husband got a call in the middle of the night and they were like, you need to start to prepare because her body's been hit so badly. But, you know, I woke up. I was like, I'm not going anywhere. I got a kid. I'm sticking around. So I woke up and I literally saw, I mean, they're professionals, but I saw them a handful of doctors crying that I had woken up. I mean, they just did not think it was going to happen. And they're, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they're, again, they're professionals. The kind of tears that you kind of wipe away, a little light sniffle. But I think even my team was like galvanized at that point because they knew I was, not that we aren't always fighting in these instances, but they were like, oh man, this mm-hmm. this girl is fighting. Yeah. And so, yeah, when all of those systems went wrong, it was almost so overwhelming that I stopped then at that point, even reading the chart because it was becoming so complicated. And and I was just like, look, they've got it. I often say too, I, cause I would start to hear so many, cause when you have so many doctors, they're telling you different next steps. It was like, it was amazed. And so I was like, you all need to get organized. So one of my doctors, cause I'm a project manager. So I was like, <laughs> I started project managing my care from my ICU bed. They put together a text chain and they started to organize my care in a really cohesive way. And at that point was the real changing point when I started mm-hmm. better and we started, we got organized. And I think 
when you have so many things go on, it sort of becomes like a mush. I just had to stop keeping track of it. You know, it was just too much. Just trust. I think at Mm -hmm. that point, it's really hard to trust. And even I, at some point, would start to get new symptoms that I ended up having uremia. They were trying to get me off of dialysis. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I sort of joked that my kidneys had came half halfway back to work, but they weren't filtering my toxins. So I started poisoning my own brain with my own toxins and new things would come up that were nightmarish. (laughs) One step at a time. And I said to my cardiologist, I wanted to be home by my husband's birthday. And sure enough, I was five weeks later. (laughs) That's just so much to have happen all at the same time. And you received multiple surgeries on top of that, like you said. And then after this five weeks, you finally get to go home for your husband's birthday to to spend time to meet really in in a proper sense, your newborn daughter. How did you cope with all of that sudden change in your life? Not just with the health challenges and recovery that comes along with that, but also now you're a new mother on top of everything. Yeah, yeah not well. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be honest. One can like, imagine not. <laughs> not well. I got home, right? But as many people know, when you get discharged from the hospital, it doesn't always mean that you're better or if anything's gone away. So I... When I got home, I had, I was spending more time outpatient at doctor appointments than I was even at home. It was like my I had a new full-time job, and that was either going to dialysis, going to get my treatment, or going to doctor's appointments. I was, as people know, dialysis is it, it takes hours a day. You know, I'd get there at noon and I wouldn't get home till five. An all-day event. Yeah. An all-day event. So Yeah, that part was incredibly challenging. And so I was home, but I wasn't even really getting to be with my child for like spans of time, let alone I wasn't cleared to lift her until Mm -hmm. April. So, you know, I had her in January. This is March now. At that point, I had to really accept the challenges of what I would call at that point disabled motherhood, which, which for me, it just was like, look, I'm no less a mother. Just it's going to look different than I imagined. And Mm -hmm. to cope with that, you know, and I think anyone who gets a diagnosis, you got to sign up for some therapy. And I had hit my out-of-pocket max. So (laughs) your friend Taylor went twice. Full steam ahead. (laughs) I went twice a week to therapy because I also had uh, medical trauma. Mm -hmm. After everything I had gone through, I had a lot of medical trauma. So I was dealing with acute trauma in a sense because I'm still getting labs that aren't great. I'm still Mm -hmm. like, my kidneys don't work. You know, I'm still, so I'm dealing with acute stress as well as PTSD from the hospital. And then they went ahead and put me on, you know, an antidepressant because, you know, they're very, very worried at this point of my postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. I would say, I remember I used the metaphor. I felt like a bit of like a stalker with my own child. Like I totally obsessed with her sort of Mm -hmm. watching from the outside. Watching other family members sort of be the primary caretakers and feeling at one point, I remember feeling like, oh, they're better with them. And just having that thought, I was like, oh, I, okay, I need to go get even more help to deal with that. So I think it took a really long time for the fantasy of motherhood to match the reality. And I would say 
the culminating truth is that I actually think after everything I've been through, I'm actually a better mother than I would have been otherwise. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, through all the challenges that I've been through, the incredible amount of growth, emotional growth that I had to galvanize within my soul (laughs) to get through all these things has made me, I think, a better mother. Makes sense. So your experience, this sort of trial by fire entry into motherhood, sort of an unusual route, but one that you feel has worked out well for you, not a one and done scenario. As we mentioned before, AHUS is a chronic condition. There's no cure for it at the moment. You are still being treated for this condition regularly. Tell us about how you've been managing this disease. What's treatment been like? How do you feel like you've adjusted since then? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So you're talking to me, Jill, my kid's going to be two in a couple of weeks, actually. So it's been about two years since. So if you were to see me on the street, you'd have no idea. I look physically normal, quote unquote. But I would say it took me about nine months to get off dialysis. And I'm I'm one of the lucky one to 2% of folks who got to graduate from dialysis without a new kidney. And that's a lot of people with this disease have new kidneys because it just wrecks your kidney. I think the only reason was because I got that treatment early on, it was able to help me set me up for success. Folks who don't get the treatment in the early days of their flare, total kidney failure, and sometimes they don't come back. So I was very lucky. When I say lucky, I mean nine months of dialysis lucky, but I'll take it. (laughs) I'll take it. And now my kidney is about akin to what folks would see as like a stage three kidney disease. Mm -hmm. So it's not perfect, but I would say that symptom wise, it's very mild. You can kind of, people walk around with stage three kidney disease all the time and have no idea. So in some ways it feels like I got a lot of my life back in that sense. However, I will say treatment-wise, the drug I take is a powerful drug. And I've reached this point, I call it a luxurious point because I'm very grateful for treatment, where the side effects of the drug are now the things that are more frustrating Mm -hmm. and the symptoms of the disease itself. So it's not just a pharmacy pill-style drug. It's basically like a maintenance chemo. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, an infusion drug. And I go in every eight weeks and I get it. And that week is rough. As folks who have had those kinds of drugs know, the fatigue is high. I, you know, often get sick. I mean, when you have a toddler and an immunocompromising drug, it's not a great cocktail for uh, a wellness. Joint issues are common. I have a torn shoulder ligament because I'm, you know, I try to stay active. Mm -hmm. It's just harder than it used to be. But, you know, the biggest thing that, you know, I try not to be too worried about is, you know, like even last, my last lab was not amazing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, symptomatically, I'm okay. But, you know, who knows what's going on in there? Right. (laughs) So we just try to like, I try not to worry until my doctors start to worry. And 
compartmentalization kind of gets a bad rap, but sometimes it's good to like, okay, I'm going to put that worry in a box and just keep on having a good time with my Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's the only thing you can do compared to getting all wrapped up in whether the little numbers are going up and going down and what that might mean for your life. Yeah, I can totally understand that need. Definitely. And through all of this, your experiences with AHUS have inspired you to become a patient advocate and to offer your assistance for people who are facing chronic and life-changing diagnoses. You mentioned in our discussion prior to the show that AHUS has given you a clarity of purpose and how you want to live your life. Can you expand on that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I sort of joke that I came back to life with a new assignment. <laughs> like, you know, the life I was living before was great. You know, I was having a good time making things. And, but now I really, really feel this drive to help people because, look, let's face it, rare disease, chronic disease, all these things. There's a quote from Susan Sontag where she talks about every, all of us live either like in the kingdom of, the unwell or the kingdom of the well, and we're going to all be there Mm -hmm. at some point. And so I really want to, when you reach that point of being in the kingdom of the unwell, I'm here for you. And in the ways that I try to be here are, you know, I started the Substack where I share my own story, but I try to share like tactics and things that I find helpful in midst, amidst chaos. I also try to even tangibly, you know, I go into the hospital, you know, you'd think I'd never want to see one of those places ever again, but I go in every week and I'm a patient and family services volunteer. And I Mm. go around and I go into rooms and I check in with folks and I try to, I always say like, I can't promise healing, but I can promise hope. And yeah. And so that's really what I think I'm And I get letters and emails all the time from folks who go like, oh, I got a diagnosis and I found you and you gave me a model for how I think a life could look after this. And I think I yearned for that when I was so sick and things were really scary. Like, I wish I could have Googled and found me (laughs) and been like, oh, look at her. She did it. Oh, there she is at the beach. Okay. And instead of for me, which I literally was like, I never, I don't know if I'll ever get out of here. To just see that it's possible can sometimes give people something to shoot for. Right. That's great. And I'm sure that those people who are reaching out to you, they're really happy to have somebody who's doing what you do to help give them hope. One of the topics that you're passionate about is balancing having a chronic illness with being a parent, particularly how people who are in that type of position can feel guilty about how their disease will affect their child. You mentioned a little while ago feeling like a stalker to your own child. And that obviously, clearly not a healthy way to be thinking about the relationship with your new baby. Uh, Can you tell us about your experiences there and what you would say to others? Yeah. Well, I think when we talk about children, they change every minute. Like, you know, so a baby is very different from a teenager. But I will say, at first, I had to take care of my own emotions about the situation. <laughs> you know, I think once I got active therapy and and treatment in, in, for my mental health, then I was able to find, and through that process, I was able to find tools to connect. Because I was like, how do I connect with this baby when I can't, when she's crying and I can't pick her up? 
that sort of helplessness that she had. And I had to figure out tactics to soothe her when I couldn't do it the like, you know, quote unquote, old fashioned way. But I but I also thought like, wow, that there's so many disabled parents out there who are doing this atypically and they're succeeding. So why can't I? Also, too, I would say, you know, even now, my husband is like the one that gets up in the morning and makes breakfast for her. And he's like often the one that is the more hands-on parent because I am you know, struggle with fatigue and whatnot. But even early on, we connected through silliness. I had this terrible disease, but she was a really fun laugher. And she laughed really early, actually. She laughed like when we were in the hospital and (laughs) not even that many weeks old. Like we have pictures of her like laughing her little cheeks off. And I was like, this is the coping mechanism here. Like, Mm everything is going wrong and we're just laughing. (laughs) And for me, I used being silly as a way to connect with her. And, and even to this day, my husband's like slightly frustrated that she thinks I'm way more funnier. funnier. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) He's like a little chip on his shoulder about that. (laughs) But, you know, I think also too, we don't sweat the like minutia. I think that that's another big thing. Like we don't have a schedule. We have a rhythm. You know, when mom gets tired, that's when we're going to chill out. When we're hungry, we're going to eat. We we don't go by the like, oh, it's seven o'clock. This is what we're doing now. This is what we, I, we don't have that. We've thrown that out the window because we just need the flexibility. Mm-hmm. And I think in that sense, you know, I just don't worry about the little things. Oh, we made it. We ruined that dress, that adorable dress. Oh, well, let's throw on another one, you know. And I have better days than others. There are days when I get more stressed or things like that. But all in all, I would say we also, I think I had a friend tell me, she was like, you, I feel like you just do this differently. Also too, like she says, she was like, sometimes I see parents disappear when they become parents, like socially, mm-hmm. and we show up, we come to everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's hard with a chronic illness. You know, I try to pace myself, but the village came to support me when I couldn't do for myself. That's great. And my husband needed help. And now like we're going to all the parties. I'm just going to be like, hey, I'm going to bring a one-year-old with me. Hope that's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So we show up and we show up for our community. And I think in that way, we kind of throw out the old model and try to really celebrate life. And ha- even if it's not perfect, even if I have to leave the party early because I don't feel well, we just roll with it. Right. <laughs> You adapted. Everyone has to adapt to having a child. Yours was informed a little differently, but you adapted and you're continuing to adapt. So that's yeah, great. Yeah, we're to have fun, frankly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's another big piece of this, right? If I'm going to keep living, if I'm going to be here, if I'm going to have this disease, I'm going to have fun because otherwise, what is the point? <laughs> like, I use this quote a lot, but, and I butcher it. So I should figure out what exactly she said. But Cheryl Strait has a quote that, like, you don't have the right to the cards you think you should have been dealt, but you have Mm. to play the hell out of the ones you have been. Mm -hmm. And I try to do that every day. And another topic that you're passionate about that I think listeners of our show will definitely relate to is how people who have a serious diagnosis will suddenly have to learn to be a patient. 
sometimes overnight. And that doesn't change with the chronic illness. You, you mentioned a little while ago that your, your new full-time job at a certain point in your life was going to dialysis and receiving treatment related to that. So it's definitely a skill that you have to learn almost like a profession. That's a lot to cope with and one that everyone could use some support with, that type of change. Can you expand on some of your ideas there, this sudden sort of plunge into learning how to be a patient? I think especially early on, and I don't criticize myself this because it was a learning curve, but there was, I had a passivity in the situation, right? Like I was just like, okay, this is what's happening now. Okay, this is what's happening now. And the minute I started activating and being an active part of my care, asking questions, getting folks to organize, like I said about the text chain, everything changed. And what I realized is by being an empowered patient, I was improving my health outcome. Mm -hmm. I, you know, was staying aware in the hospital enough, you know, not always, but like, generally speaking, I wasn't sleeping the whole time. I was asking questions. I was active. I was sharing with my partner and caregiver so he could also advocate. And then when I kind of got home and had to continue being a patient so actively, I was learning how to be a team member who was in charge of my care instead of letting the doctors be the ones. Because ultimately too, and I had to do that because I had more than one doctor and they don't always agree with each other. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'd have one doctor who wanted this and one doctor. So I was like, oh, okay, I'm not passive here. I'm going to have to make decisions, gather information, connect dots. Because also, and I don't know if this is anybody else's experience, but my doctors aren't always that great at talking to each other. Mm-hmm. They're not always the best communicators. Amongst that's them. something that we hear often in speaking with people. And that's not to mention on top of the sudden increase in medical and insurance paperwork that's in your life that you have no plan or previous knowledge to get through. Oh, yeah. I always, mm-hmm. I sort of joke that the pile of insurance mail I had grew teeth and started growling <laughs> Because they also denied my drug three times, mm. the drug that I needed to save my life. Because, by the way, it's one of the most expensive drugs that exists. Right. So they were like, nope, nope. And then finally, I needed a patient advocate who, <laughs> thank God, those, you know, officially exist. And at that point, I needed it. And my doctor to basically convince the insurance company to approve it. Mm-hmm. But thank God this doctor was like, we're going to give this to you anyways and figure it out later. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's a language to speak, right? And, sure. and how to get what you want and be insistent, but also respect boundaries. Like I'm very, I have a very good relationship with my doctors. I'm the kind of patient that has my doctor's cell phone numbers. I always joke, you never want to be that close to your doctors, but you know, here we are. And anyways, I, you know, I reached a point recently when my health insurance was going to change and I was really concerned to lose my doctors and all in my, especially my two key doctors, they were like, we're going to work it out. They like having me as a patient because I follow through when we agree on, when we agree on a path forward, as far as like treatment and, you know, what I'm supposed to do. I don't slack. I follow through. Mm-hmm. And if something doesn't work, it's not because I didn't follow through. So they know that I'm a good team member. They know that I respect their boundaries. They know that when I say some things like I'm going to the ER right now, like there's a reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so 
we built that rapport and trust. But I would say it's really tricky because, look, let's be honest, the stats on med- medical bias is not great. Mm-hmm. And sometimes doctors don't always believe their patients when they say something is wrong. So it's figuring out how to get your doctors to listen to you, to get them to take you seriously is its own challenge. And I think there are ways in which you can talk to a physician where they hear you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not always easy, but it's a puzzle that we all have to solve because again, that is an Everest we all have to climb sometimes. But it was really evidenced, and I will say really quickly, I went to the ER once and I actually felt so calm because I was like, I'm not a freshman patient. I know how to come in here. I know how to like speak to them to be taken seriously. I know I'll get good care. And I I don't think I would have known how to do that before. Mm -hmm. It's a type of relationship that I think until you have a chronic illness or a rare condition that kind of takes most people's interactions with doctor out of transactional, you know, I go, I have a cold, I go to the doctor, they give me a pill, I take it, boom, you're done. AHOS is not that type of experience. You're going to be dealing with this for the rest of your life. And so you need to learn the skills to navigate that and build that kind of relationship. And I think, yeah, until you have that type of experience, you're just not going to be well-versed in it. So although AHOS is rare, it is commonly discovered and diagnosed during pregnancy. If there is someone in our audience who is going through a similar scenario that you went through, perhaps they have a family member that just received an AHUS diagnosis, or maybe they have an illness that is sort of intersecting with this time in their life where they've just delivered a baby. What advice do you have for them? Yeah. Well, I think first, you know, you just have to give yourself some grace because it's really, really hard. I think the first and foremost thing is getting a great medical team. And sometimes you've got one already, but sometimes maybe you don't feel like you've had the best team. And I would say, you know, there are challenges in health insurance, but sometimes it's just as simple like going to a a new hospital or getting a new provider, doing that research. If you got this diagnosis, you know, there are groups online that I, I really suggest joining and getting doctor referrals. I give referrals all the time for for my doctors here in the Los Angeles area. Mm-hmm. There are great specialists throughout the country, but I think this this is an advanced medical disease and it is not if you're not seeing improvements and we're talking about like week to week cuz it can be very very dicey. Not a lot of wiggle room where your kidneys are involved. Uh, not <laughs> Not at all. So like if you don't see movement, get a second opinion. And I think it's okay to tell your, I mean, I got a second opinion and I told my nephrologist, yep, I'm, this is what I'm doing. It keeps them on their A game. That's for sure. <laughs> like, you know, if they know you're still looking around. And so then my doctor started asking for other doctors, even without me asking, because it's such a complex disease. I also think too, it's really, you feel like everything's out of control. And I think it's like having the patience with yourself. And something I I do recommend is as long as the medical piece, as long as that train is going, it's about keeping yourself in those moments of stability. 
trying to savor those moments of stability. There's there's this technique I really like that helps keep me regulated when I have moments of acute stress called glimmer. I didn't come up with it. It's been out there. I actually have some brain fog that comes with my thing. Mm-hmm. It was my thing. So I forget the woman's name. I'll just say it right now, like brain fog all the time over here. She basically says that if you can just kind of slow down and notice small moments of comfort, safety, and regulation, that it's a chemical reaction, sort of the chemical opposite of being triggered. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just sort of like, oh, this cup of coffee, oh, the view these tiny accessible moments, you can truly like sort of lower that heightened sense of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And these little little posts of calm can help get you through the tidal wave of trauma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to also remember that as much as you can have post-traumatic stress, I really want to remind folks that you can have post-traumatic growth as well. And that once you get beyond the thing, mm-hmm. and I feel this about myself, I feel left with tools that I never even knew I'd ever have that have made me stronger. Mm-hmm. See, therapy can get you through almost anything in life. Find yourself a good therapist too. Yeah, a good therapist. Yeah, because, you know, good Lord, I'm so grateful. <laughs> Well, you mentioned it earlier, but you've been writing about your experiences over at your Substack, which is called Rare Disease Girl. What can people expect if they connect with you there? Yeah, yeah. You know, honestly, I really endeavor to build community, a community of folks that are trying to live their best life despite challenging medical diagnosis, but it's also for caregivers too, frankly. You know, I tell my story, you know, how I got to where I am, but also again, tips and inspiration and and things to hope bring folks to a positive framework. Because I do think when you get a chronic illness, you know, it just sometimes feels like, uh, you know, all all the dreams I ever had are never going to happen and everything is terrible all the time. And, And I'm here to say, no, it's not. I really do think that Despite the challenges, there's a lot of wonderful things we can access. I mean, even in the the time I was on dialysis, I was really trying to find ways to live. You know, I couldn't just surrender to my illness because then what's the point? So we figure out how to make the other days even better and how to share community with each other. And the blog is just sort of a way to, through my pain, my pain, a positive direction. And I, you know, again, I, the feedback I get is really warm and kind that folks feel like through my story, they feel seen and they feel inspired and they know they're not alone. Mm -hmm. And I'm also writing a book, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. I think that it all went to that. And I'm in the edit process of that now and excavating my experience is not always easy. And I think telling your story is not always that easy either. It's hard to sort of go back and sort of pick at those scabs. But mm-hmm. I think the day, all that anguish I went through, I just want to give folks a sense of that there's another side to that pain. And I know this sounds almost crazy, but I am happier now than I was before. The My capacity for joy now is just so expansive. I feel like before, I, it's like I, I felt this level of joy and contentment. And now 
It's been blasted into space. I feel joy now and gratefulness in a way that I feel like it it used to be effort. Mm-hmm. Now I just live and breathe it. Interesting. I, I think that like if you get one of these really, really scary things, you know, I think you hear this all the time actually from folks who get a terminal diagnosis that they sort of have this appreciation for life. And maybe, I feel that. Maybe puts things in perspective in a different way. Yeah, it puts it in perspective, but it also illuminates so much. Like before, I just didn't notice the little things. Mm-hmm. I sort of was on autopilot, and now mm. I breathe gratefulness, and that's like transcendent. Well, you're going to be speaking about your experiences and maybe some of these techniques that have helped you later this year at an AHUS conference in Florida. Can you tell us some more about that and also what's next on the horizon for you? Yeah, well, you know, I have to give a shout out. There's a few of the AHUS organizations out there, especially AHUS Alliance and the AHUS Foundation. They do amazing work for this disease, whether it's information gathering or community building. I'm so grateful to have been able to interface and meet the folks that run these organizations. They're just rock stars. And so the foundation yearly puts together a conference and brings folks with this disease together. And I have to say, I'm so excited. I feel like whenever I've met someone with this disease, it almost feels like we're distant relatives. Mm-hmm. Like There's like an excitement, you know, that we understand each other in a language that like no one else has. And so mm-hmm. I do think, gosh, we sort of label these illnesses as something that's terrible and bad. And yes, there are extreme challenges, but the communities around these diseases are so beautiful and supportive mm. and loving. And I think that's something that I've prior to my disease, I just never experienced anything like that. And I'm really, truly excited to get to go and see folks. And yeah, the community building is just really special. So I mean, I encourage folks that hear this, if they haven't found the community around their disease, start it because I think that there's a hunger for that. I mean, I'm on that Facebook group all the time. Mm -hmm. Like people (laughs) chatting, it's really, really special. It's really special. Yeah, I agree. Being able to see especially rare patients meet other people when maybe they felt like they were the only person in the world who had that experience or that condition. And just to know that that's not the case is something, something always special to see. And it's really amazing. So yeah, well, Taylor, listen, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show today and sharing your story. It's an amazing and inspiring story. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you. All the work you're doing as well. Well, good luck with your book. Good luck at the conference. And please keep in touch with us. Of course. Yes. Anytime. Right. And if you'd like to get in touch with Taylor, you can find her over on her Substack. That's Rare Disease Girl. She's also on Instagram and on TikTok. And as we mentioned, she'll also be speaking at the AHUS Foundation Conference in Florida on April 27th through the 28th later this year. And we'll leave links in the show notes of this episode so that you can check all of that out. And remember, you can always keep up with the latest in rare disease news by visiting our website at patientworthy.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Patientworthy on those platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. It may seem like a small thing, but a review or rating really does go a long way toward helping us out. 
And finally, if you have any questions about the podcast or perhaps an idea for a future episode, you can get in touch with me by sending an email to colby at patientworthy.com. That does it for today's episode. Thank you once again to Taylor Kaufman for joining me on the show today. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.